13-year-old Yara Gambriasio left her gymnastics center in northern Italy in November 2010 and vanished. Three months later, her body was found in a field. When DNA was found on her underclothes, investigators launched a massive sweep for DNA samples. But would it be enough to find Yara's killer? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. I want to thank everyone for the feedback on last week's episode on Kamisha Block. I have heard from a lot of military families and a lot of veterans who appreciated a thoughtful look at PTSD, but I've also heard from families who have somewhat similar stories where they don't believe that they have been given the full truth of their soldier's death. And I'm hoping to bring some of those stories to the show over the next year. This week's episode takes us to Italy. And if you thought my Maori pronunciations were terrible, this might be a whole new level. So often I cannot cover foreign cases like this because there just aren't enough resources in English. But the murder of Yara Gambarasio is the opposite. There is plenty out there, including a subtitled multi-part documentary called Unknown Male Number One. Highly recommend it. It's available online. But still, I had not personally heard of this case before Emma Louise recommended it to me back when this show was still in sight. So thank you for sending this in because this is a very fascinating look at an investigation. You'll see what I mean. This is not a standard investigation. Quick warning, though, this episode does include details of the death of a 13-year-old child. Though I don't share any details not necessary to understanding the crime, listener discretion is advised. So let's start with Yara Gambriasio. She grew up in northern Italy in a little town, Brembate di Sopra, probably. It's called something similar to that. It's a village of about 7,000 people located an hour from Milan. Yara was born on May 21st, 1997. She was the second daughter of the family. Her parents, architect Fulvio and schoolteacher Mora, also had two little boys. In 2010, Yara was 13 years old, full of energy. And she still retained that innocence of childhood. Sometimes we'll say that a kid is young for their age, and I think that would be an excellent way to describe Yara. This isn't to say she was immature in any way. She was just still young and carefree and open. That surliness that sometimes sneaks into those teen years, that isn't something we're dealing with here with Yara. On Friday, November 26, 2010, Yara headed off to the sports complex where she took rhythmic gymnastics. For those not familiar with the sport, this is an activity that blends gymnastics and dance 
but it also introduces an item like a ribbon or a ball or a hoop. And the gymnast works that item into their routine. Yara was incredibly passionate about her sport. It was about 5.15 in the evening when Yara left home. She didn't have a lesson or training session that night, but she had offered to let them borrow her CD boombox. There was a competition coming up on Sunday, and they were planning to use it. Yara's town was one of those where you see kids and teens walking to school, to dance, to the park, to home. It's a quiet little place removed from the city. So it wasn't out of the ordinary for Yara to make this short walk to the gym. From her house to the gym was about eight to 10 minute walk. Yara made it to the gym. And while she was there, she decided to get out on the floor a little bit. So she did a little bit of training. Her instructor characterized it as light training. At a little after 6.40, Yara got a text from a friend. She replied at 6.44 with, quote, we need to be there by 8, end quote. And this was in reference to the Sunday event. Because Yara was only supposed to go, drop off the CD player, and come back, her mother Mora started calling her at about 10 past 7 when she hadn't made it home yet. Even if Yara got held up talking to friends or decided to jump in and train with a class, Mora would have expected her to be home by 7. She wasn't the type to be late like this. The call. Mora made to Yara's phone went straight to voicemail, which indicated the phone was off or perhaps the battery had died. Yara's parents called around to a few of her friends' houses. Maybe Yara stopped in, lost track of time, and was running late. But by 7.30, when no one had seen Yara, Fulvio called the police. And the police responded immediately to hearing about a missing 13-year-old. Within five minutes, they were on their way. They started searching. They started at the gym, where it was confirmed Yara made it there from her house and had left there to walk home. Even though the gym was one part of this big sports complex, there weren't witnesses to Yara walking home, or to anything out of the ordinary. There were a few people who said they saw two men talking outside of a red car, and maybe Yara was seen talking to them. But aside from that, there was nothing. And this sighting is one of those that is vague enough that it's pretty hard to verify. You might wonder how a teen girl could be in a reasonably busy area and not be spotted. But I think that's precisely why she wasn't seen. If you see a bunch of teens coming and going from a gym, one of them in particular is not going to stand out to you. A bunch of people probably saw Yara. They just didn't know that they were seeing her. They just saw another teen coming and going. So when they were asked about it, even just a couple hours later, 
No one could quite remember which gymnasts and dancers they had seen that evening. Everyone joined the search for Yara. Everyone from, you know, the firemen and police to citizens and friends and just residents of the area. They searched the riverbank. They were looking in outbuildings, fields. They searched the entire sports center. Again, this was large. There were multiple rooms. There were a bunch of gyms. There were a bunch of entrances and exits. But they found no sign of Yara. In running Yara's phone records, they found that 644 text, and that was the last communication on her phone. She must have sent it right as she was walking out of the gym. At 6.49 p.m., her phone pinged at Mapello, which is a nearby town, but it wasn't in the direction of Yara's home. She shouldn't have been out there. Again, cell phone pings, they're not always accurate. They can send your cell phone to a different tower if the one nearest to you is busy. So this is kind of a rough estimate. At 6.55 p.m., her phone went dead. When Yara hadn't come home or made contact by Saturday morning, the investigation ramped up even more. It was cold. It was snowing. That really increased the urgency. Yara was 13, so it's not that they thought she wandered off like a small child would have, but had she gone away from the gym and went somewhere with a friend and then got hurt on her way back or was hurt by someone, she could be in danger being exposed to the elements. The search focused on the surrounding areas and moved out from there. But the investigation also looked a little closer to home. They looked at her parents. There were no indications anything happened to Yara in her home. She was at the gym at about 6.45, and 45 minutes later, the police were called. So there wasn't even a whole lot of time in there. But the truth is we are all statistically more likely to come to injury at the hands of someone in our family, so it had to be ruled out. To do this, the police tapped the family's phones. What they heard over the wires excluded the family from suspicion. The parents did not know where Yara was, and they were genuinely upset. This wiretapping, now this is the first part of the investigation that grabbed my interest. It is very unlikely this wiretapping would have happened here in the United States. To wiretap, you need a warrant. For a warrant, you need probable cause. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but you would be hard-pressed to find a judge in the U.S., who would accept as probable cause this idea that they're just statistically more likely to have done it than a stranger. That's not really probable cause. They would need something more than that. And from what I've heard and read in this case, they didn't have more than that. They had no specific reason to suspect the parents. And it doesn't sound like they actually really suspected them It's more like they were just crossing them off 
the list. It's just interesting to me how easily they were able to do this in Italy. Anyway, on Sunday, the media caught wind of the story, and they pretty much swarmed this town. They interviewed anyone they found on the street. You hear over and over again in these interviews the concept of normalcy. Yara was a normal girl from an ordinary family living in an average city doing normal things. And that's what terrified people in this case. So often we want to find a reason, like she was walking through a bad part of town alone, or she was running with the wrong crowd, or she was sneaking off to see a boyfriend. Really, just anything that tells us that this couldn't, wouldn't happen to our kids. But the truth is, Yara was just a kid walking a few miles from the gym to her home in a safe area that was populated, and she vanished. That's horrifying, and that is reflected in the statements of the police, of the mayor of the town, of all the residents in the days after Yara's disappearance. The police brought in search dogs to help. These were highly trained and highly specialized search dogs. They took Yara's towel from her gym bag for the reference source for a dog named Joker. The towel was great because she used it to wipe sweat off her body. It had a solid scent. They then started Joker at the gym's locker rooms where Yara had last been seen. Immediately, they ran into a problem. The media was outside the gym. The public was outside the gym. Everyone was watching these dogs in action. And that meant they were standing right in the path of the dog. Joker had to bob between legs, which is just less than ideal circumstances from the start. The second issue with this search is that the path from the gym to Yara's house was one she walked regularly. She had walked it the day she went missing, so they knew there was a chance Joker would just walk that same path, but it was worth seeing if he veered from it. Joker first headed toward Yara's house as expected, but then he went down into a field down to a small stream. Then he turned around, went back up to the road, and walked until he hit a construction site. And it was this spot where Joker began indicating very strongly. This site was in Mapello, a good 10-minute walk from the gym, and it was in the area where Yara's phone had last pinged. Her phone pinged there just five minutes after she left the gym, which makes some people wonder if she had been driven there. But even if she was walking, it's possible, again, that cell phone tower just happened to be the one to pick up her phone. It doesn't mean she was right there on the spot. A search of the site turned up nothing. So investigators did two more searches with Joker, and he duplicated that exact path. According to his handler in the documentary, if a dog was wrong on the first search, they won't recreate the precise path again. 
a second time. But Joker recreated the path a second time and a third. I have not seen any indication that a second dog recreated this path and indicated on the same spot. But from my reading on search dogs, that's what they typically do. If they get one dog to indicate, they'll bring a second dog in to see if it happens again. But nothing was found on the site, not even a scrap of fabric. So the police tapped all the phones of men who worked at the site, which again, wow, because that is so much more authority than the police have here in the U.S., short of if they think you're a terrorist. They can tap your phones for that. But in an investigation like this, I can't imagine a judge allowing people to have their phones tapped just because a dog indicated at a work site that a missing person might have been there. Regardless, they tapped the phones. Several of the workers were immigrants, so they also had to use translators to monitor the wires. So the phone calls would be recorded and then later played for the translators. That would lead to a couple days, sometimes three, four-day delay between the phone call and when the police knew what it actually said. In this case, one of the lines had a hit. Mohammed Fikri was a Moroccan man, and he said something on the phone that the translator put as, forgive me, God, I didn't kill her. By the time the police had this translation in their hands, it had been three days from the phone call. And at this point, Mohammed was on his way back to Morocco. The police intercepted the boat he was on and arrested him on December 4th. They also searched the van that he had been using while working in Italy, and they found in it a blood-stained mattress. This would be the shortest Crime Lines episode to date if it ended here, but it didn't because Muhammad had a rock-solid alibi. He was nowhere near the gym on the day of Yara's disappearance. The phrase the translator had interpreted as suspicious was actually a common Arabic insult. It was a mistranslation, misinterpretation. The mattress with blood on it was apparently from something else entirely, though it's not been explained, as far as I can see, what that something else is. And honestly, I'm really curious as to the explanation for having a blood-stained mattress, but whatever. It's not connected to Yara's disappearance, so we're moving on from it. Muhammad was cleared and released. A few days after Christmas, after Yara had been missing for a month, her parents gave a televised statement. We often see these here in the U.S. and I'm sure other countries where the parents are basically asked to make a public plea to the press to get information on the case. In this instance, you can tell in this recording that these parents are really, really struggling. 
They did not want to be in the spotlight. They wanted their daughter home. Fulvio read the family statement asking for someone to come forward. He said that they believed their daughter was still alive. He also said that the family would not be speaking with the media. The press in this case was very aggressive. The family was being very protective of their grieving process throughout this. They were not comfortable with the publicity in the least, and they even turned down offers for public displays, like public vigils. Instead, they had a mass said for Yara. It was a very difficult situation for them, and it was being made worse by the unwanted intrusions. But because the media followed the case very closely, and I mean literally followed it with cameras in hand, there is so much information available, and the whole country was looking for Yara. So it was a double-edged sword. The case got a lot of help from these media intrusions. But there really could have been more balance between getting the case covered and leaving the parents in peace. Over the three months Yara was missing, many tips came in and they were all followed up on. But it wasn't until February 26th, 2011, that answers came. A man was flying his model airplanes over a field about a 15-minute drive from where Yara went missing. He landed one of his planes among tall weeds when it wasn't flying correctly, and as he made his way over to it, he saw what he thought was a pile of trash. Then he saw shoes and realized he was looking at a body. Yara had been found. A definitive identification would be made later, but the body was still wearing exactly what Yara was last seen in. This area where she was found is an odd one. It's remote. There isn't a direct path connecting it to where Yara was last seen. From the gym to this field, you have to wind your way through to get to it. So it seemed like the person was familiar with the area, but this isn't a place someone would have lived. It was a scrub brush field surrounded by an industrial park. So it was possibly someone who worked in that area or maybe someone who went to an industrial-themed dance club that was right next to the field. At the scene, investigators found the SIM card and battery for Yara's phone, but the phone was gone. Her house keys and her iPod were also nearby. Yara had not been buried, but she did have a thin layer of dirt and grass on both sides of her body, so she may have been rolled over at some point. She had been hit in the head, enough to knock her out or stun her, but it wouldn't have been fatal. She was also stabbed nine or ten times. None of the individual wounds were immediately fatal on their own. And Yara was found with grass clutched in her hands. It's believed she was dumped in the field still alive, left either to bleed to death or to die of exposure. 
she also had a lot of small cuts on her body that served no purpose except to inflict pain. This led investigators to assume the killer had, for some reason, tortured her. This was a horrific death. There is no getting around that. Whoever did this to Yara showed an extra level of sadism. Because the stab wounds were through her clothes, it didn't seem as though she had been undressed, attacked, and then redressed post-mortem. There were no signs of rape, though her bra was unhooked, so it's possible there was an attempted sexual assault. And of course, sexual assaults can take many forms and not just penetration. On autopsy, they found lime in Yara's airways, and they found different fibers on her clothing, ones consistent with rope and others compatible with the interior lining of a vehicle. This provided another clue. Yara may have been transported to the site in a truck or a van used in the building trade. That would explain why she had breathed in powdered lime and had rope fibers transferred to her clothing. At the lab, crime scene techs were able to find DNA on a few items. The first two were the phone battery and her gloves. Someone, though, could have a benign explanation for leaving touch DNA on these items. But there was DNA found in a place that allowed for few innocent reasons. It was on her underwear. The theory was that the killer attempted to assault Yara. As she fought, he was injured. Stabbings are an easy way for a murderer to cut themselves and leave DNA behind. It's also possible that as he was grabbing at her pants, he was scratched as she fought back. They couldn't tell what the DNA was from, blood or skin cells. All they knew was that it wasn't saliva and it wasn't semen. As to why they couldn't find DNA on any of the other clothes, they believe that was due to the elements. Yara's coat had been exposed to rain and snow, as had the legs of her pants. Her shirt was just one layer from her jacket and not terribly protected but her underwear had been covered by other layers of clothing, and that preserved this evidence. As the techs processed the DNA in the lab, investigators were looking at people who had connections to both the industrial area and to Yara's hometown. They went to the industrial nightclub on a Saturday night to kind of check it out, and investigators learned it was a membership club. It wasn't just open to anyone off the street, so the club had a list of everyone who was a member. They used that list, they cross-referenced it to people who had ties to Yara's hometown where she went missing, and narrowed it down to about 400 names. They also started collecting DNA from people connected to Yara. Italy at the time did not have a national DNA base of any sort, so the police were, in a way, building their own. 
They started with family, then they went out to school friends and their parents, then people at the sports complex, and they just kept collecting DNA to run against the sample. They also ran mobile phone records for the night Yara went missing. Anyone who pinged near the sports complex and near the field that night was then asked for a DNA sample. These samples were given through consent, surprisingly enough. Investigators did not get warrants for all these samples. Police asked, and people said sure. When the DNA testing was done on what they found on the underwear, they labeled it Inyato Uno, or Unknown One. They decided early on in this investigation that the person who left the DNA on Yara's underwear was the killer, unless compelling evidence proved otherwise. So they sent this profile to an expert who could find traits through DNA. He determined that the Y chromosome of this DNA was common in that northern Italian area, which actually narrowed things down a bit. It told the police that the killer was Italian, not an immigrant, and he was a local. It was further determined that there was a 94.5% chance the DNA came from someone with light eyes, either blue or blue-green. So then they took that and they went to the DMV, pulled everyone with that eye color, and kept narrowing it down. The DNA analysts decided to look specifically at the Y part of the DNA. This was the easiest because the DNA sample had mixed with Yara's. This wasn't a clean sample. It was very near a cut on her body. So they knew that Yara, being biologically female, wouldn't have a Y chromosome. Any Y they found would have to belong to this unknown one they were looking for. They began to build a paternal lineage on this one part of the DNA. The first people they ran this against were samples from members of the nightclub, and they actually got a hit on a man called Damiano Girioni. But when they compared his DNA, full DNA, to the sample, it wasn't a match. He also had a solid alibi of being out of the country at the time. So he was not the killer, but he was related to the killer through his father's line. Damiano did not have any brothers, and his father was dead. So it wasn't an immediate family member, but he did have a connection to Yara's family. His mother was their housekeeper for 10 years. She knew Yara very well, and she was devastated by the girl's murder. And even more so when she realized someone from her late husband's family had to have been the one who did it. But investigators now had a starting point. They had Damiano and his family, so they were going to start with him and branch out, testing everyone until they found a match. And this path looked pretty easy. Just check Damiano's extended male family members on his dad's side, get a hit, easy. 
Well, the first issue was Damiano's father came from a massive family. He was one of 10 or 11 kids. So then branch out generations to his uncles and their sons. And, well, it was a lot of people. As they're collecting these DNA samples, they begin wiretapping the family's phones. More wiretapping. They were hoping that this massive DNA testing would rattle the killer and he would slip up on the phone. But that turns out not to be what the police heard. What they heard was a big group of family members asking each other why they were all being DNA tested. They were confused. So to find more and more people to test, they built out Damiano's paternal family tree. In 1866, the northern provinces in Italy began keeping vital records. That is how far back the police created the family tree of Unknown One, and they traced the family back to a tiny mountain village called Gorno, and that's where they were focusing their efforts. Through this massive testing, they found a cousin of Damiano's named Pierpaolo. He was a 50% match to Unknown One. They tested his brother, and he had the same match, 50%. Their father, Giuseppe, had died back in 1999. So they used two stamps from the family's memory box, two stamps that he had licked, and they got his DNA from that and tested it. This proved that Pierpaolo's father, Giuseppe, was the father of Unknown One. They exhumed Giuseppe's body to be sure, and in testing his remains, the DNA matched. Okay, so his two sons, the two sons we know about, aren't the killer. So this means Giuseppe had another child that his family did not know about. He was pretty young when he got married, so the police believed it was likely an extramarital affair. This also meant that the connection between Yara and the housekeeper ended up being a pure coincidence. While Unknown One would have been her nephew, she had no idea he existed. So now comes the task of tracking down who Giuseppe's unknown son is. He worked as a bus driver, so they checked regular passengers to see if that is how he met somebody. They were looking for women who may have had a baby out of wedlock. They talked to old lawyers, midwives, priests, anyone who might know. And they came up with about five possibilities, but none were Giuseppe's son. They had to face the next possibility. And that was that the mother of Unknown One was actually a married woman, and her husband possibly didn't know he wasn't the father. So now instead of looking for Unknown One, they are looking for his mother. They attempted to match mitochondrial DNA, which comes from the mother. They mass DNA tested women who would have crossed paths with Giuseppe in the 60s and 70s but they couldn't find any matches. It turned out that they were actually looking at Yara's mitochondrial DNA, and that's a significant issue with mixed samples. 
investigators were laser-focused on the DNA. They did still follow up on credible tips when they came in. But when they found this sample of unknown one, they thought this was it. It was not going to take long to identify the person. But in spite of this extensive DNA testing, they could not find him. In the first few years after Yara's murder, they had collected 20,000 DNA samples. None of them were unknown one. In August 2013, a lead came in that was made a pretty big deal in the media, but it ended up going nowhere. And I think it was a big deal because it was nearly three years later and the case was still unsolved. This was a note written in a visitor's book of an Italian hospital. This hospital was located about an hour from where Yara lived. Someone wrote, quote, tell the police of Bergamo that the killer of Yara Gambarasio was here. May God forgive me. Based on how this church chapel worked, it was believed the note had to have been left the same day it was found, probably within a few hours. The note looks like it was probably a hoax, a hoax that wasted police's time and resources. They pulled the CCTV footage from the hospital, so if they ever identified who wrote it, I haven't seen that reported in any English-language reports or, honestly, anything that shows up with my Google Translate button. I haven't seen it, but it didn't go anywhere and was likely a hoax. Though it looked like this case was growing cold, investigators were still on the track of who Giuseppe may have been having an affair with. They talked to his co-workers and got the impression Giuseppe was a bit of a womanizer, so they weren't sure it was going to be so easy. Finally, in June 2014, one name floated to the top of the list. It was a neighbor named Esther Arzufi. Esther met Giuseppe when she took a bus to her job at a textile factory. Esther's DNA had been collected already in 2012 in one of those extensive DNA collections, but it didn't show up as a match because, like I said, they were running it accidentally against Yara's mitochondrial DNA. This time, they ran it against Unknown One's DNA profile, and it was a match. He was the son of Esther Arzufi. Esther had three children, with two of them being sons. Her youngest son was pretty quickly ruled out. Her older two children were a pair of boy-girl twins born in 1970, and the boy's name was Massimo Giuseppe Bossetti. The middle name being Giuseppe seemed too on the nose to be a coincidence. He also had light blue eyes, and he worked in construction, things investigators already believed about the killer. He also lived in the town where Yara's phone had last pinged, and the search dog Joker had led searchers to. Police decided not to approach him directly for a DNA sample. They didn't want him to go on the run, get him tipped off there, if he was the killer. So they followed him around for a bit, 
waiting for him to discard something like a cup or a cigarette butt. But he didn't. He didn't leave anything behind. So while he was driving home with his wife and kids one day, they pulled him over at what looked like a standard DUI checkpoint. They had him do a breathalyzer. They said the first reading didn't work quite right, so they had him do another one. And that's how they collected his saliva to run his DNA. They rushed that sample back to the lab. And the tech stayed until one or two in the morning to run it. There were 21 compatible markers, with 16 being the minimum for a match. Massimo Bassetti was a match to unknown one. So on June 16th, 2014, they staked out 43-year-old Massimo's house and followed him to work to arrest him there. When they arrived on the work site, he was up on the second floor, kind of on a roof area working. And they have a video of this, and he's moving back and forth up there, almost like he was trying to find a way to get down, to get out of there. But there were a lot more police there than they were of him, and they grabbed him before he could run. He did confirm his identity to the police, but said he wouldn't talk until he spoke with a lawyer. When he did talk, the police characterized his answers as strange, but his lawyer said he answered what they asked, and he denied he had anything to do with Yara's death. This arrest was unsettling because just as Yara was an everyday person from a typical family, so was Massimo. He had a job he went to every day. He had a lovely wife. He had three children he adored. It seemed so odd that the person who killed Yara, allegedly here, didn't look like a big scary monster, didn't look or act like the type of person who would torture a 13-year-old girl before killing her. He went to church and lived a life that, on the surface, seemed very above board. It was also unsettling for these families to uncover this affair from 40-plus years ago. Giuseppe's widow found out 15 years after her husband's death that he had children with another woman during their marriage. And Esther's husband was finding out that the children he raised were not biologically his. And of course, it was hard for the adult children. Massimo's twin sister said she did not care about her mom's past and loved her dad regardless, but I'm sure she had to process it for a bit. It also came out that their younger brother had a different father as well. Esther, though, denied the affair's up until her death in 2018, she first said the science was wrong. They just got it wrong. Second, she claimed if the science wasn't wrong, then her OBGYN must have artificially inseminated her without her knowledge because she maintained she never cheated on her husband. She never slept with Giuseppe. The family is dealing with all of this in the public eye, with Massimo additionally facing murder charges in one of the most high-profile cases in Italy. I'm going to tie it with Meredith Kircher, Amanda Knox here. 
That is how high profile this was. After Massimo's arrest, the media immediately announced Yara's killer had been caught, period. The issue here being, of course, innocent until proven guilty. They announced he was the murderer before any evidence had been heard in court and before his side had a chance to challenge any of it. And we do have a tendency to do this when an arrest is made in a case. With DNA, we do it even more so. Think of the Golden State Killer. Most of what you see are announcements about how he's been caught. But most media outlets and politicians know enough to couch it in the word allegedly, even if the rest of us don't do that. With this case, though, the Italian Minister of Internal Affairs put it on Twitter that the murderer of Yara had been caught. Massimo hadn't even gone to trial. He was technically innocent. But when you have the Italian Minister of Internal Affairs blasting it out publicly that Yara's killer has been caught, it made people wonder, would Massimo ever be able to get a fair trial? I think it's a question people are still asking. But DNA wasn't all they had against Massimo Bassetti. Investigators had archived the CCTV footage from the area back when Yara went missing. So they reviewed the footage, and they found a truck slash van similar to Massimo's work truck near the sports complex. It's hard to tell for sure. None of the footage is particularly high quality. You cannot see a license plate. You can't tell who is driving. You can't see any markings on the truck to distinguish it. But the vehicle appears to circle the area something like 18 times. And that's if it's one truck. We have to accept it could have been two or three similar trucks in the area. And all the timestamps on this grainy footage were different. None of the five cameras they pulled from lined up time-wise. And of course, now it's four years later, it's impossible to go back and ask people, oh, hey, how far off was the actual time on your video four years ago? Nobody knows. We do have a decent estimate, and based on the estimated time, the van showed up on the CCTV footage repeatedly for about 45 minutes before Yara's phone goes off. After that point, it's gone. It does not show up again. They then ran Massimo's phone records, and his phone pinged in the area that afternoon and evening. But his phone was turned off at 5.45 p.m. and not turned back on until 7.30 the next morning. Now, his initial alibi, he said he was at work. Old-fashioned investigating showed that he left his job site at 2.30 to buy supplies, but he didn't go back for the rest of the day. So he didn't have an alibi for the time in question. His wife would claim that he was home with her and the kids all evening, but cell phone pings undermined that claim as well. There were other very circumstantial things mentioned. One, Massimo was familiar with the area. He lived nearby. He frequented that specific area near the sports complex. He 
would go to a restaurant on Yara Street. So he was familiar with the area like police assumed the killer was. Second, Massimo had some questionable searches on his computers. From my understanding, they did not find any child pornography on his computer, but he did search for pornography that's often called like barely legal and showed a strong preference for pubescent girls or let me rephrase that to be technical, adult women who looked like pubescent girls. Because Yara's murder was believed to be sexually motivated, this was another check on the prosecutor's side. So the charge he was facing was an aggravated murder charge, and they listed two aggravating circumstances. The first was that Massimo used torture and acted with cruelty which is clear from Yara's injuries. The second aggravating factor was that he took advantage of the time, place, and person to stop Yara from being able to defend herself or anyone else from being able to intervene. Basically, he took a 13-year-old who couldn't fight off a grown man and took her at night in the dark to a remote field where no one else could help her. In this jurisdiction, that is an aggravating circumstance. Through his attorneys, Massimo continued to assert his innocence. The first attorney who met with him shortly after his arrest said he didn't seem to understand what was going on. He was very focused on bailing out and getting home. Because the DNA evidence was very compelling, the judge ordered him to be held without bail. So the lawyer was telling him, you're not going home. And he basically had two options. He had to give a reasonable explanation for why his DNA was on Yara's underwear, or he had to contest the accuracy of the DNA. If we remember, Massimo is also coming to this realization that his mother had cheated on his father and his father was not his biological father. And his mother, this entire time, is saying, no, I didn't cheat on your father. So from Massimo's point of view, the DNA was wrong, a wrong across the board. And that is what he stuck with for a while. He later had another story about how he often got nosebleeds, and some of his tools, which included a knife, had been stolen. So he's saying there may have been a transfer situation where he bled on his tools or had his DNA on the tools. The killer then used the stolen knife to commit the crime. The stolen tools story sounds too convenient, but anyone who works on a construction site will tell you that tools have a way of walking off if they aren't secured. But it's not a compelling argument, even if he got nosebleeds, because Massimo reported this tool theft. A check of the record showed that it happened two years after Yara's murder, not before. So when Massimo went on trial in early July 2015, he kept maintaining his innocence, and he had been in pretrial custody for over a year. 
instead of running a marathon trial, the trial occurred over the course of a year with the judge and jury meeting once a week to hear evidence. The jurors, six of them, sat on either side of the judge facing forward, and they had to weigh hundreds of witnesses and exhibits. Just this scene is so different than what we generally see in courtroom dramas, because usually courtroom dramas are from the U.S., and we're used to seeing that setup. No one witnessed the actual crime. No one saw Yara get kidnapped. No one saw her get attacked. So this trial was a lot of tech and science. We're talking CCTV footage, cell phone pings, fibers that were on Yara's clothing, and obviously the DNA. So the defense was to challenge this evidence. The CCTV footage, it's blurry at best. You can't tell if that's Massimo's work truck or someone else's. A defense investigator had noticed in one of the videos that a parking lot gate arm went up to let workers out. So even though the timestamps on the videos were all different, that arm went up at a specific time every day. So now they had a starting point for what time all of this actually happened on that CCTV footage. They did some math that I'm not entirely sure how they got there because Google Translate is not exactly nuanced, so some of the timeline details weren't clear. But basically what they were saying is that even if the truck in the video was Mosmo's, they calculated it would have taken 20 minutes to pick Yara up and get her to the field. Then he would have had about 15 minutes of gap time, which he would have to take Yara out to the field, attack her, then get back in his vehicle and leave. Though, like I said, I'm not sure how they get this number, but let's say this 15-minute window theory is very compelling when you read it in the original Italian. That's also assuming there wasn't a third crime scene because some people believe that Yara was attacked elsewhere and then moved to the field. So we have the truck, the field, and a third crime scene. Could he have made it to all those places in 15 minutes? Very unlikely. According to the defense, Massimo couldn't have carried Yara out into that field quickly or if at all, because he had a hernia at the time. So they're basically setting up that Massimo couldn't have done it, even if he was the one on the CCTV footage. And as far as the cell phone pings putting him in the area, even if they are accurate, this wasn't that far from where Massimo lived. So why wouldn't he be in that area? Then there were the fibers on Yara's clothing they were able to match them to the inside of Massimo's work truck, but the defense checked into this. This is a very common carpet fiber. Thousands and thousands of vehicles, vans and buses and trucks all had these same fibers. Investigators searched everything of Massimo's, the work truck, all of his tools, everything, and they couldn't find anything that linked Yara to him in that direction. She didn't leave behind any 
biological evidence on his stuff. Of course, it was nearly four years later before they searched these things, but unless he replaced all of the carpet and upholstery in the truck, you would have expected they would have found something. Perhaps the exception to this is if Yara was not attacked in the truck at all and wasn't transported injured in the truck, that she was only attacked in the field. If this was premeditated, possibly tarps had been put down in the truck. So there are ways to explain why her DNA wouldn't be found in the truck, even if he did do it. So now about his DNA. The prosecutors said this was a conclusive match. The lab said it was one in billions and billions of a chance it belonged to anyone else. But the defense was going to attack it. They had to. This was the evidence that would convict him if they didn't. So we're going to do a very quick DNA lesson here. And honestly, it's going to pretty well exhaust my knowledge of DNA. There is nuclear DNA, and that is the DNA found in a cell's nucleus. Half of it is from the father, and half of it is from the mother. That's what they matched to Massimo, nuclear DNA. There is also mitochondrial DNA, which is located in the mitochondria of the cell. It is only inherited from the mother's side. This mitochondrial DNA is what they attempted to use to find unknown one's mother, but they ran it against Yara's mitochondrial DNA by mistake. Why did they pull the wrong mitochondrial DNA, you ask? It's because they couldn't find the mitochondrial DNA of unknown one. They found his nuclear DNA and Yara's nuclear DNA and Yara's mitochondrial DNA, but they couldn't find his. The prosecutor said that maybe Yara and Massimo were distantly related on their mother's sides, and that's why they couldn't find it, because it looked like Yara's. But we know this isn't true because they made a mitochondrial DNA comparison to Massimo's mother against Yara's DNA, and it wasn't close enough of a match to throw up any flags. The lab cannot explain why the mitochondrial DNA wasn't there. You may think it degraded, but studies have shown again and again that mitochondrial DNA is slightly more resistant to degradation than nuclear DNA is. At the very least, they would have degraded at the same rate. I couldn't find anyone who has said nuclear DNA is more resistant. It would be unexpected, to say the least, to see the mitochondrial DNA gone and the nuclear DNA nearly perfect. So what does all of this mean in this context? Massimo's defense says this means there is something wrong with the DNA, whether an accidental mistake or steering an investigation that was getting a lot of criticism for going nowhere. That depends on who you ask. There are some who say it was probably a mistake. There are plenty on his innocent side who smell a frame job. But the bottom line is the defense says, we are seeing something that should be impossible here. 
intact nuclear DNA without a trace of mitochondrial. Science currently cannot explain how this happened. And if they can't explain it, how reliable is this match? The defense wanted the DNA rerun and retested, but this was impossible. The sample used was relatively small, and they used it all up running the tests. There is no more DNA to test. About halfway through the trial, the defense brought up a somewhat persuasive alternative suspect, one of Yara's dance teachers, Sylvia Brena. And if you have kids in gymnastics, you know that the teachers are often not adult adults. They're more like 18, 19-year-olds. And from my understanding, Sylvia fit this age range. She was a young woman. The main link between Sylvia and Yara's death was found on Yara's jacket sleeve right on the cuff. There was a bit of blood found, and it matched Sylvia. Because this blood had lasted through rain and snow while Yara's body was in that field, the lab determined it had to have been a significant amount not to have just completely washed away and degraded. Sylvia had no explanation for that blood. This is the first time this information ever came out was at trial. It was not in the media. In fact, the media reports through the years said again and again that the only DNA found on Yara's clothing was from her underwear. And now we're learning that someone else's blood was on her jacket. This is the very definition of a bombshell. Sylvia's father testified that the night Yara was missing, she cried all night and didn't give a reason why, which makes it sound like she wasn't supposed to know Yara was missing yet. On top of that, at 6.35 p.m., the night Yara went missing, so we're talking nine minutes before Yara's last text, Sylvia and her brother exchanged text messages. We don't know what they say because both of them deleted them. They didn't delete messages before that or after, just those ones from around 6.35. And like I said, they both deleted them. It's not like Sylvia erased it on her phone and her brother kept his. He also erased it. When asked why they did this, Sylvia answered that she didn't remember. A dozen questions got the same answer from Sylvia, either I don't know or I don't remember. Unexplained deleted texts and a bloodstain couldn't overcome the evidence against Massimo in the police's eyes. Investigators said that they cleared Sylvia and her brother, but From what I have seen, there's no real explanation of why. Why were they cleared? It's really odd how some parts of this investigation are played out in the media step by step, and then other elements are not even mentioned until a bombshell is dropped in the middle of the court. So here's the evidence against Massimo. We've got the DNA. That is the compelling part of this case. The circumstantial parts, he knew the area, he had been seen driving around the sports complex, not just the night of Yara's murder, 
but previously they believe he may have been casing, may have been on the lookout, may have been on the hunt. His cell phone being in the area, I don't find compelling because he lived in the area, but he turned it off at 5.45 p.m. and didn't turn it back on till the next day. We know Yara's killer was mindful of her cell phone and pulled the battery from it almost as soon as he abducted her. So it makes sense that he would have also turned off his own phone. And that's what Massimo did. He turned off his phone. And then, of course, there is Massimo's apparent sexual interest in pubescent girls. There are some reports that while in jail, he wrote some gross letters about young girls' bodies. It's not important to get into, but he had an apparent sexual interest in girls who were Yara's age. On July 1st, 2016, Massimo Vassetti, now age 46, told the court, quote, I may be stupid and idiot and ignorant, but I am not a murderer, end quote. After a statement, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. He was ordered to pay restitution of 400,000 euros to each of Yara's parents, 150,000 to each of her siblings, and 18,000 towards legal fees. Massimo began the appellate process immediately. Italy has a very interesting system with three levels of conviction before someone is declared truly guilty. The first is the trial judgment, which we have a guilty verdict here. Then there's an appeal to the appeals court and then another appeal to the court of cassation. And that just means the highest appeals court. Both the prosecution and the defense can appeal. So an acquittal in Italy doesn't mean you're free until you finish this process. And a conviction doesn't mean you're spending your life in jail until you finish this process. This is what we saw with the Amanda Knox case. She was convicted at trial for the murder of her roommate, Meredith Kircher, and the defense appealed. She was then acquitted on the appeal, and the prosecution appealed that. Later, at the third and highest level, she was acquitted. Regardless of the outcome of her first trial, she very likely would have had all three of those levels. There was a short appeal three months later about his sentence, not the conviction, and the court upheld the sentence, saying that the context of the murder of Yara was that she rejected her killer's sexual advances and that Massimo's reaction to it was sadistic. They also said the DNA on Yara's underwear proves Massimo's guilt and therefore life in prison was not too harsh of a sentence. So Massimo's conviction appeals begin, and the second verdict came in July 2017. They denied his appeal to re-examine the forensic evidence, and they upheld the previous conviction. In this case, Massimo said, I am the victim of the biggest miscarriage of justice this century. So now we go up to the third level, the Court of Cassation. In the fall of 2018, they upheld the lower court's convictions. So this is that three-layer conviction, all guilty verdicts. And his life sentence was officially and finally pronounced then. He had, of course, already been in jail for four years at that point. 
Massimo then moved outside the Italian justice system and appealed to the European Court of Human Rights, arguing against his life in prison sentence. Google Translate tells me they held it inadmissible. So I'm going to guess that means they rejected the claim on the face without hearing arguments, maybe ruled that they were not the court to hear the arguments. I'm not entirely sure. It just happened in September 2019. Massimo can still appeal. Like in the U.S., you have your direct appeal that has to do with your trial. Massimo can appeal like a post-conviction relief if he finds new evidence. His attorneys and his innocence defenders have indicated that the fight isn't over yet. So I'm not sure what they think they have or what they have, but it looks like they're still working to free Massimo Bassetti from what they believe is a wrongful conviction. Yara was buried across the street from the gymnastic center she loved so much, in between her grandparents, where her friends would, for years, leave little trinkets. While Yara's parents made a public appearance in 2015, to award a gymnastics trophy in their daughter's memory, they made no public comment. They had been forced into the spotlight during the worst time of their lives, and this very private family had their daughter's final moments opened up to the public. But they have been fiercely protective of their family's privacy as much as they could during this. This investigation has brought this concept of privacy in Italy to the forefront. There have been huge debates about the media intrusion on the case, not just of Yara's family, but also pursuing Massimo's mother and father after it leaked that he and his siblings were the results of an affair. That private family drama was really secondary to Yara's case. It's just the path that got them to Massimo. But it was widely covered almost as soon as the arrest was made, like a soap opera unfolding. Surely Massimo's mother, father, siblings, Giuseppe's widow and children deserved a little bit of privacy in this process. And then, of course, there's the DNA testing, this mass DNA testing. Whenever we talk about DNA testing and authorities and DNA databases, privacy comes up. But while they were first collecting the DNA, the conversation was more focused on the investigation. Were they too broad? Did the police have a plan or were they just randomly testing people? We now know how more and more focused their plan was and how they narrowed it down. But they really did start just DNA testing people because their cell phones pinged near the gym or because they frequented a certain nightclub. That was the early criticism of the mass DNA testing. But the discussion has turned to privacy. Were they storing these profiles? What if they matched DNA samples taken in this case to other crimes? Could they use it for that? And why did so many people feel compelled to submit their DNA even when they had these questions about it? Why didn't they feel they could assert their right to privacy? Italy did establish a DNA database in 2016 
the discussion around it didn't have to do with Yara's case or any other murder, really. It was mostly about illegal immigration and terrorism. The DNA database does not include the samples from the sweep for Yara's killer. They are not allowed into it. To be entered into the database, the person has to be arrested for a crime, and white-collar crimes are excluded. If the person is acquitted at trial, they are removed from the database. And it can only be stored for 20 years unless the person is a repeat offender, and then it can stay in for 40 years. The crime being committed had to have been a premeditated crime. So there is one person from the DNA sweep eligible to be in this database, and that's Massimo Bossetti. With so much English language true crime focusing on the U.S., we have seen how this country here, right around me right now, has been grappling with balancing a person's right to privacy against the use of DNA to solve crimes, particularly in the cases of familial DNA. If you look up DNA testing privacy, you are just going to get pages after pages of articles and op-eds discussing Ancestry, 23andMe, GEDmatch, and what are our rights in giving up our DNA even voluntarily. I gave my DNA to one of these companies, not only voluntarily, I paid them to do it. That is a privacy consideration that a lot of people have to weigh. I think this case is a good reminder that it's not just the U.S. dealing with this issue. Other countries are also having to grapple with it within their own legal systems and their own societal norms. Technology is moving faster than legislation. While there are people who believe that the familial DNA and mass testing that happened in Yara's case railroaded an innocent man, I would say most people, from what I've been reading, believe that what it did was it sent a killer of a child to prison. It almost seems tasteless to discuss DNA and privacy laws when this worked, this got the guy, this solved the case. How can we have questions about it? But the truth is we do, and there are questions worth asking. And we have to decide not just for ourselves, but as a society, which do we place more importance in? Catching the bad guys or in the personal privacy of the innocent people getting wrapped up in this?